Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. So I thought I'd just start off by telling you a little bit about where I come from. My granddaddy, Moisha Ness, who is very beloved to me, but he came over to this country in the year 1900. He was 12 years old. He came with his brother, who was a few years older, and they came from a little shtetl in Galicia, the southeastern part of Poland, and it was called Przeslami, and their mother had just died and they came escaping anti-Semitism and poverty. That's Penny Rosenwasser, activist and author of Hope Into Practice, Jewish Women Choosing Justice Despite Our Fears. She takes us back a century ago. And of course they came in through Ellis Island and he immediately got a job in a sweatshop and pretty soon he got promoted to sewing women's skirts. Couldn't go to school because he always had to be doing that. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he'd managed to save a little bit of money. So when a relative wrote him from South Carolina and said, you know, there's a good job for you here in a dry goods store. You should come down and take it. He did. And pretty soon he was able to buy his own dry goods store. That's where he raised my mom and her four siblings. It was a little town called Denmark, South Carolina. 2,000 people. They were one of two Jewish families. And on Saturdays, he would drive his sons round trip for a couple of hours so they could go to Hebrew school. But on Sunday, he would teach Bible study at the local Baptist church because he was the most learned biblical scholar in the town. Fast forward to the 1950s, white Protestant middle-class suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia. That's where I grew up. I remember people looking at me sometimes and saying, gee, Penny, you don't look Jewish. And I would shrug my shoulders and say, thank you. Because that's what I thought I was supposed to say. It was only in my 30s that I remembered that. I was horrified. But I think it's an indicator of the anti-Semitism that was in the air in those 1950s white Christian middle-class suburbs of Washington, D.C. I went to Temple Bethel Sunday School every Sunday till I was confirmed. We had a Hanukkah menorah in our window, and we had a Christmas tree. My parents wanted us to celebrate Christmas. They wanted us to blend in and belong as American. I felt very uncomfortable in my Jewish skin. I wanted to be cool like the Christian kids all around me. Part of the book goes into my challenge, my battle of um, combating the effects of that assimilation and reclaiming what I call my loud, proud sense of Jewishness, which grounds my social justice activism today. Author Penny Rosenwasser remembered her childhood in her doctoral dissertation, and in that process, she formed a discussion group. She recruited a broad range of Jewish women who had grown up in all different regions of the U.S. and from a variety of class backgrounds. Most of us were Ashkenazi, a couple of had Mizrahi heritage, 
Um, we had very different relationships to our Jewishness. Some of us were lesbians, some bisexual, some heterosexual. And we would meet for one day a month, and we would share our stories. Even with all those differences, one thing that we found we all had in common was that we all felt like there was something really wrong with who we were as Jewish women, that we had some kind of personal pathology. But as we met and kept talking and making meaning together, we realized there was nothing wrong with us. The problem was the system of anti-Semitism and the systems of racism and sexism and homophobia and heterosexism and classism and ableism and ageism. So that was very powerful, and the, the stories from those women were so incredible, I didn't want them sitting in a, on a doctoral dissertation on a shelf somewhere that no one would read. So that was the motivation for hoping to practice Jewish women choosing justice despite our fears, which is full of the stories of that group. It also has analysis, um, my perspective on what anti-Semitism is and what it isn't, um, on race and class and power and trying to show like, why some of us as Jews have the incredible struggles that we do today. Just to give you a flavor, these are some of the chapter titles. Insider, Outsider, Jews, Race, and Privilege. Let's talk about Jewish power, rethinking stereotypes, suckled on worry, Hello, assimilation, goodbye, persecution. There is a real Jewish woman, and I am not her. Push, push, push for perfection. Where do I belong? Cracking the code of our conditioning. The chapter on race, for example, insists on the centrality of Jewish multiculturalism, the full inclusion of Mizrahi Jews, meaning Jews from Arab countries like Iraq, Lebanon, Tunisia, Sephardic Jews, Jews from Spain, South America, Portugal, North Africa, Jews from India, Africa, Jews with hyphenated identities. So the chapter on power explores the complexities of white Jewish affluence and success and structural advantage, and then how these can be exaggerated into that stereotype of Jewish power. For example, Jewish prominence in Hollywood is not the same as Jewish control, because the culture of power in this country is still predominantly Christian, as well as white and male. And the chapter also um, talks about how sometimes the way anti-Semitism plays out is by targeting individual visible Jews and taking the heat off the class system. You know, that power elite who make the decisions that affect our lives every day. And of course, a percentage of that power elite are Jews, but the majority of that power elite are Christian or folks from other backgrounds. Of course, not all Jews are affluent. Significant numbers are poor or raised working class. Holocaust survivors, older Jews, younger Jews. And then another thing that I talk about in the book is how sometimes as feminists, as women activists, we are afraid of being targeted by that, the idea, you know, those powerful Jews. So we'll sit on our hands and sit on our strength and hold ourselves back from being the most powerful activists we can be. This is one of my own stories. I remember when my less assimilated, gutsy, working-class Jewish friend Mel and I organized an unlearning anti-Semitism workshop for our staff colleagues at the Michigan Women's Music Festival. 
While Xeroxing handouts beforehand, Mel yelled across the courtyard, Penny, how many more copies of the Jewish liberation piece do we need? Right there in the sweet summer morning, surrounded by women who were family, I shrank into my Doc Martens, muscles tightening, blood draining from my face. Oh my goddess, are they rolling their eyes about those loud, pushy Jews, I worried. We should be quieter. Then, Melanie K. Kantrowitz's words floated before me. Someone will always call us pushy. Isn't it time to really push? <sighs> I breathed again. Yep, it's time. Author and activist Penny Rosenwasser is pushing, and pushing the idea that fighting anti-Semitism and supporting Palestinian liberation go hand in hand. Rosenwasser is the special events coordinator for the Middle East Children's Alliance and has led women's peace delegations to Israel and Palestine. So internalized anti-Semitism is also about the behaviors that have been passed down through a lot of our families in response to historic persecution. You know, from the Crusades to the Inquisition, the European pogrom, certainly the Nazi Holocaust, leaving a lot of us with some kind of feelings of fear for our safety, or feeling like something bad can always happen. And even if we aren't feeling that, we might worry a lot. We might be always looking over our shoulder, you know, kind of a sense of hypervigilance. We might have a lot of anxiety or a sense of panic or urgency. There's a gay Jewish men's group in San Francisco, or at least there was, and they took Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, only they would sing, Don't Be Happy, Worry. <laughs> and then when I was doing these talks, someone told me the story about, have you ever heard of the Jewish telegram? Start worrying now, details to follow. So we could talk all night about manifestations of internalized anti-Semitism. Just a couple I wanted to mention. Um, for many of us in our families, we grew up learning to be very critical, to be very critical of each other and to be very critical of ourselves. And I think where this comes from is the idea that if we were critical enough of each other, we'd shape up, we wouldn't screw up, and worst case scenario, we wouldn't be attacked or killed. I think kind of similar that what a lot of us have this kind of need to control everything around us, because if I can control everything, nothing bad will happen and I won't be blamed. One aspect that I've noticed, and I think this applies to any kind of internalized oppression, whether around class or race or gender or ableism, whatever, is if you notice someone in your group and they do something that makes you cringe, that's usually a little heads up, that's a sign. And I will give you one of my many examples. When I would see Jewish women who were being overtly competitive, and I would just feel like, ugh, get them away from me. You know, ugh, that's disgusting. I don't want to deal with that. Until, upon examination, I noticed I had exactly those same feelings of competition in me, which I was thinking that I hide. But um, once I realized that I had that same stuff, it, it totally shifted it for me. Like, I just felt much less critical when I'd see it in other, these other women. I'd feel more compassionate and actually have a sense of humor about it. The way fear operates, it can freeze our thinking. It can distort our perspective and confuse us into thinking that what happened in the past is happening right now. And that's what I call our internalized victimization. There are a lot of deep feelings of grief and suffering and pain and fear that have been passed down through a lot of our families. 
and it's certainly possible to work through that, but it doesn't go away by itself. I've learned from my friends in the domestic violence movement the adage, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Any group who has been traumatized, if we don't work through and heal it, we can end up projecting it onto another people we've been taught to hate or fear, like Palestinians, like Muslims. I think this is a significant dynamic that's going on in Israel right now towards Palestinians, certainly in this country around Islamophobia, certainly it's not just coming from Jews. think is really important is to really notice how our Jewish trauma has been and continues to be manipulated by different leaders. Some of them Jewish leaders, some not, some in Israel, some in this country, manipulating our fear to serve their own political ends. An example, this is not just of, uh, around Jews, but you know after 9-11 when George Bush said you're either with us or against us, and he was trying to drum up support for bombing Afghanistan by manipulating the fear of people in this country. Not meaning to be overly rhetorical, but I think it's in the interests of U.S. imperialism to keep Jews afraid, to manipulate support for a militarized Israel, which translates to selling U.S. arms, supporting U.S. hegemony in the Middle East, and access to Middle East resources. You know, I'm sure a lot of you know that the U.S. sends over $3 billion to Israel every year, but 75% of that has to be spent in this country on U.S. corporations, and most of it goes to arms dealers. You know, when Israel was bombarding Gaza for 51 days, killing over 2,100 Palestinians, 500 of them children, most of those folks civilians, and 78 Israelis died, most of them were soldiers, but the arms that Israel used were mostly from this country. F-16 fighter jets, Hellfire missiles, Apache helicopters, armored personnel carriers, tear gas. So who's benefiting? My friend and colleague Irina Klepvich is a lesbian feminist Jewish professor at Barnard. She teaches um, Yiddish and women's studies. And Irina escaped the Warsaw Ghetto when she was four years old with her mother during World War II. And her father was one of the leaders of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. And he died in that uprising. And Irina writes, my Jewish fears remind me I have not left the tribe. I need to convince others of what I have to convince myself again and again, that we must choose justice despite our fears, that our fears are real, rooted in history, but they can't stop us from making just choices. And Irina goes on to point out how unhealed fear can make many Jews place the Holocaust at the center of our Jewishness, and instead she says we need to recontextualize it so that we are informed by the Nazi Holocaust but not defined by it. And I find this a very useful thing to remember. We are informed by it, absolutely, but it doesn't define who we are today as Jews. And then these are my words. Um, we need to face the Israeli government's refusal to dismantle settlements, to end the occupation, to grant Palestinians democratic and human rights. We need to build a movement to push our government hard to pressure Israel to implement these goals. 
Not allowing fear to derail us, we remember silence equals consent. When AIPAC and the Anti-Defamation League and the Jewish Federations press for misguided US policies that support subjugating Palestinians, our speaking out for Palestinian human rights as visible Jews has an impact far beyond our numbers. And just to reiterate, these feelings of trauma or fear are not our fault. You know, this stuff has been passed down through us through generations with good reason, but it's our responsibility to clean it up, you know, so that we're not continuing to project Jewish trauma from the past onto the Palestinians. So overall, this book is about Jewish women and trans folks but it's really for anyone who cares about human liberation. Um, it's about linking personal healing with activism for justice. And the bottom line is if I feel better about who I am, I'm gonna treat other people better. My life is gonna feel more full of possibility and my activism for a better world is gonna be more powerful and effective. And then for Jews, that also includes having the courage to face our fears, but not to act on them. So that we're choosing justice despite our fears linking healing from internalized anti-Semitism with working for the liberation of Jews and the liberation of Palestinians and the liberation of all people. That was author and activist Penny Rosenwasser. In a moment, she'll read more excerpts from her book, and you'll hear passages read by four other women. You're listening to Making Contact. For more information about this or past shows, or to make a difference by supporting our work, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. In Penny Rosenwasser's book, Hoping to Practice, Jewish Women Choosing Justice Despite Our Fears, she has a chapter called Jewish Positive. It shines a light on how Jews have resisted persecution and have fought for others' liberation. At her book launch event, Rosenwasser invited other women to read selected passages from that chapter on liberation and allies. You'll hear from Professor Smidar Lavi, an Iraqi Jew, Kate Raphael, activist and author, and Chris Welch, a radio host, who now takes us back to the 1500s and the Portuguese Inquisition. Did you know about intrepid visionary Doña Gracia Nasi? After failing to persuade the Pope to stop the Portuguese Inquisition, she mobilized an underground railroad to help hundreds of Jews escape. And then during the Shoah, one of the most courageous unsung heroes of the Jewish resistance was 19-year-old Rosa Robota. After seeing her own family marched to the ovens, Rosa organized the smuggling that supplied dynamite that blew up the Auschwitz crematorium. Working in the camp munitions factory for months, Rosa and her friends carried out little wheels of dynamite which they hid in their bosoms or in the hems of their dresses. Our guide at Auschwitz said they smuggled the dynamite in their fingernails. After her capture, as she and her friends were hanged, 
she shouted, Hazak ve'amatz, be strong and of good courage. Roska Korzak, one of the chief partisans of Vilna, described her companions. When I review the course of our work, I think constantly of the women. It was they who maintained contact between the ghetto and the city using false papers, though the penalty was instant death. It was they who spread the idea of resistance, who later fought among the partisans. I want to tell you something about them. They were not extraordinary women with special training. We saw how human beings rose to the needed height in the daily execution of their tasks. Those girls had to have a daily heroism, and they had it. When Esther Brown, the white Kansas Jew, hated the inferior education that her housekeeper's children were getting, she initiated the groundbreaking Brown versus Topeka Board of Education lawsuit, leading to the Supreme Court's 1954 decision outlawing segregated schools. She was undeterred by a cross burning on her lawn or her husband losing his job. And at San Francisco State University, when a Malcolm X mural was painted with dollar signs next to Jewish stars, African-American professor Lois Lyles painted stop on the mural. When she was subsequently arrested, she explained, attributing anti-Semitism to Malcolm defames his memory. Let's remember the connections between our own immigrant pasts and those trying to slip across U.S. borders to escape grinding poverty. The connections between today's racial profiling and our own histories, between pogroms or forced exile and current immigration and customs enforcement deportations wrenching apart families, between coerced service in the Tsar's army and the recruitment of young people of color to fight U.S. wars, when no other jobs can be found, much less affordable education, between our own exodus from tyranny in Egypt and liberation struggles the world over. Our security as Jews lies in the relationships with our allies and with each other, our hope in what we can create together, solidarity rather than separation. Penny Rosenwasser has been speaking all across the U.S., challenging other Jews to change their minds and hearts. I'm now in Iowa, showing slides of Israel and Palestine. Shira is president of the Campus Zionist Group, here because her religion professor assigned her class to come. Later, the teacher sends me Shira's paper, which reads, quote, I spent at least two of my four undergraduate years waging a propaganda war against a group of people I'd never actually spoken to or really even listened to. I spoke to a Palestinian man for the first time today. Our conversation was brief, but it meant everything in the world. I wonder if it meant anything to him. On my left was a Jordanian student who had a constant stream of tears running down his face throughout the slideshow, revealing a truly tragic sadness. I was able to feel it with him for the first time tonight. 
I'm not sure why tonight was different than any other night, a familiar question in my tradition. I suppose something just needs to click inside a person before they're able to see beyond their loyalties. I hope this is just the beginning for me of realizing that the Palestinians, by virtue of being human, are entitled to as much as any other group. I hope that others can bring themselves to transcend their sacred bonds before they're faced with tragedies of their own. Next, Susanna Nockenberg reads from Penny's book. This is a statement from the youth wing of the group, Jewish Voice for Peace. We are punks and students and parents and janitors and rabbis and freedom fighters. We remember brave, desperate resistance. We remember the labor movement. We remember the camps. We remember solidarity as a means of survival and an act of affirmation. And we are proud. We refuse to knowingly oppress others and we refuse to oppress each other. We will not carry the legacy of terror. We won't buy the logic that slaughter means safety. We commit to equality, solidarity, and integrity. We seek breathing room and dignity for all people. Next, Chris Welch reads an excerpt from The Red Sea, a poem by Aurora Levens Morales. They say that other country over there, dim blue in the twilight, farther than the orange stars exploding over our roofs, is called peace. We would cross the water if we knew how. Everyone blames everyone else for barring the way. This time, we cannot cross until we carry each other. All of us refugees, all of us prophets. No more taking turns on history's wheel, trying to collect old debts no one can pay. The sea will not open that way. This time, that country is what we promise each other. Our rage pressed cheek to cheek until tears flood the space between until there are no enemies left because this time, no one will be left to drown and all of us must be chosen. This time, it's all of us or none. There's a new Jewish identity. Jewish Voice for Peace leader Cecily Saraski said, one that's multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-sexual, a united front against bigotry and nationalism and for all forms of equality. And these are my words. So Jewish liberation includes resisting anti-Semitism, which can be conspiracy theories, stereotypes, hate crimes, Christian Zionism, discounting Jewish identity, characterizing Jews only as oppressors, ignorance about Jewish history and historical trauma, not speaking up against anti-Semitism, or equating all Jews with Israeli government policies. Jewish liberation also includes opposing injustice against others, whether we're intervening against police brutality or against the Keystone XL pipeline, or fighting the Israeli seizure of Palestinian land, or transphobia, or the rollback of abortion rights. And Jewish liberation also includes valuing our Jewish selves, intertwining healthy self-love with social justice. That was Penny Rosenwasser reading from her book, Hope Into Practice, 
Jewish women choosing justice despite our fears. You've been listening to Making Contact. We'll link to the book at our website, radioproject.org. Special thanks to KPFA Radio for event recording. Music by Kyla Flexer. Ensemble Meet Nawuj. Blue Dot Sessions. John Paul Keith and the 145s. QWE. A Ninja Slob Drumi. Varetsky Pass. And Miles J. This show was produced by Lisa Rudman, with special thanks to Stephanie Welch, editor and mixer, ethnomusicologist Niccolo Scolieri, and the crew at Making Contact, which includes Monica Lopez, Marie Che, Jasmine Lopez, Quan Booth, RJ Lazada, and I'm your host this week, Karen Gordon-Brown. We value your feedback and ideas for future programs, so please drop us an email making contact at radioproject.org or chat with us on Facebook or Twitter. Music